Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. A family cruising across the country crammed together in a wood-paneled station wagon has become the cliche icon of the American road trip, but it was a reality for many families in the latter half of the 20th century. Interwoven into the history of the Great American Road Trip was the economic and population boom that followed the United States' victory in World War II, a massive infrastructure investment on the part of the federal government, and an interventionist American foreign policy in the 1960s and 1970s. The legacy of the road trip is a robust cultural history steeped in Americana and memories of a simpler, more family-oriented era. I'm joined on the podcast this week by Rich Rutte. Rich grew up in Wisconsin in the 1970s and remembers well his experiences during what he calls the golden age of road tripping. His book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip, weaves the history behind the nation's transportation network, today's speed-driven consumer culture, and the explosion of the amusement tourism industry with his own humorous anecdotes of traveling cross-country with his family as a kid in the 70s. Rich was the last of four kids raised in Elm Grove, Wisconsin. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a degree in journalism and has worked as an award-winning advertising copywriter for 25 years. Today, Rich continues the tradition of road tripping with his wife and their two sons. Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip is his debut book. Before we jump into my conversation with Rich, I have one quick announcement. Today is December 11th, and that means two weeks from now is, you guessed it, Christmas Day. In observance of the holiday season, this is the last episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast for the year. I will be back in four weeks with an exciting lineup of bi-weekly episodes beginning January 8th, 2019. My best holiday wishes to everyone listening. Now, on to my interview with Rich. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history. You learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm doing well, Kevin. All right. Well, if you could please, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your past work before uh, the book we're going to talk about today? Yeah, you bet. Uh, well, I am essentially an ad guy at heart. I've been a a writer and creative director in the advertising industry for nearly 30 years. I guess that kind of makes me like uh, Don Draper on Mad Men, only with fewer martini lunches and far fewer extramarital affairs. (laughs) Uh, Technically, this is my first book, but I've written two others um, kind of on commission through advertising agencies. I wrote a history of the first 100 runnings of the Indianapolis 500. Uh, That was a couple years ago at the during the, the 100th anniversary of that race. And I also wrote a history of the Milwaukee Bucks uh, for their 50th anniversary, which was just this past year. Um, But Don't Make Me Pull Over is really my first book that I poured my heart and soul into and can kind of call my own. And I'm pretty proud of how it turned out. It sounds like you have some uh, background in in writing history and you decided to uh, take a stab at writing a history of the American road trip. And what made you decide to do that? 
Yeah, well, I'd been searching for a subject to write about for some time, and uh, I was on vacation with my family. I had uh, uh, two sons who were eight and six years old at the time. This was back in 2011, which should give you some insight into how long it takes to get your first real book published. Um, <laughs> But I began remembering what my life was like when I was my son's ages and, and kind of traveling the highways of the 1970s with my parents and siblings. I'm the youngest of four kids. I have two older brothers and an older sister. Uh, and I suddenly realized how profound an experience those road trips really were and the impact that they had had on my life. I mean, they'd given me some of my fondest childhood memories. Uh, they broadened my horizons at that age in so many ways, just getting to travel to different areas of the country, hear the different ways that people talked in different areas of the country, taste some of the foods that they had in different areas of the country. And finally, I realized how much those road trips really strengthened my relationships with my parents and my siblings um, for really a lifetime. But I also realized how little I knew about how that great American road trip experience came to be. I mean, I didn't know how things like how America got its roads and interstate highways why American families weren't simply flying everywhere on their vacations during the 1960s and 70s, or how we got things like drive-through windows and fuzz busters, eight-track tape decks, or why our family station wagons had fake wood paneling on the sides. So when I got back from that, that family trip, um, I hit the, my local library. I did some more explorations online. I really spent about a year uh, doing some initial, initial research and I was just I was fascinated by what I came across. And uh, I knew I had the stuff to write a great book. Yeah. You know, when I came across your book, uh, you know, Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip, I, I found it interesting because I've, I've been on road trips before. I've driven across the road before on any interstates, but never really put much thought to why they're there, how they got there. Yeah, it was just it was endlessly fascinating. Like I said, I just I came across so many interesting historical nuggets, uh, little anecdotes, finding about uh, out about some of the the men behind you know some of the the great restaurant and hotel chains and some of the devices that we had in our car, um, and it was just it was endlessly fascinating to me. So uh, I you know I I sat down, I started writing, and and tried to find a way to. Um, you know, kind of bring it into a, con a cohesive story. And hopefully I managed to do that. Yeah, well, well this was a lot of fun to read. Uh, you know, very funny all the way through. Um, and I like how you uh, connect your personal experience traveling with your family with the, the history that you researched. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll start um, talking a little bit about the history first, and we'll get into some of your anecdotes a little later. Um, sure. How was road tripping in the 70s uh, different for a kid than it was today? Um, I grew mm. up, I, I was a 90s kid, um, and I can tell some differences already between you know today and then. Um, but what are the differences between the 70s and today? Yeah, well, you know, of course, the biggest thing is that we didn't have any electronic devices, any iPads or, or uh, iPhones or anything of that nature. We had to kind of find our own ways to pass time along the way. And so we played kind of some of those cheesy family games, you know, the, the, the alphabet game, the license plate game. Uh, we even played Mad Libs together. And, and man, we just had a, a, you know, a, a fun time, a hilarious time coming up with some of those Mad Libs, which are great. Um my mom also kept a 
paper sack uh, that she called the game bag, and it was all filled with those kind of cheesy dime store games, uh, like Wooly Willy was one of them. And that, that was a, a picture of kind of a, a bald, hairless man uh, beneath a, a plastic bubble. And inside the plastic bubble were a bunch of, me- of metal shavings. And you used kind of a magnetic stylus to pick up some of those black metal shavings. And you can pos- position them over Wooly Willy and, you know, create a mustache and beard on them or a big afro or whatever kind of haircut. You, might, you do remember those. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know if those are still around. Oh, yeah, so. Those. Yeah, so we had things like that. We had that magic slate drawing pad, you know, which was kind of a, a, a gray piece of plastic, and he used a red stylus to create any kind of drawing you wanted on there. And then when you wanted to start on a new drawing, you just lifted up that sheet, and, and what you'd drawn had kind of disappeared, and it left you a blank page to, to start a new drawing. But above all, my favorite thing was the very first of the handheld electronic games, and that was Mattel Electronic Football, which was about as primitive as an electronic game could possibly get. As a running back, you were essentially just a like a, a little red minus sign on a playing field about the size of a stick of gum, and you tried to outmaneuver other little red dashes and get to an end zone at the end. And it was just, you know, hopelessly primitive. Um, but it was also incredibly addictive and fun. In fact, it was named one of Time Magazine's all-time 100 gadgets of all time. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then I, I would just spend a, a, a lot of hours roaming about the, the the passenger compartment. Of course, we were completely unencumbered by any kind of seatbelt, uh, you know, mandates or laws back yeah, then. Yeah, you could so, do that then. Yeah, I would just hop up on the the rear window ledge of my my dad's big luxury land yachts and kind of sprawl out on the rear window shelf and, uh, you know, just kind of check out the cars passing by or or, uh, take a nice nap out up there underneath the, the hot sun. Um, or on those rare occasions when we had a station wagon, I might go into the back, the way back of the family station wagon and build a fort out of the suitcases around me and maybe pop open a a package of my candy cigarettes and see if I could, you know, kind of trick people who were passing by in the cars into thinking I was, you know, having real cigarettes in the back of the, the, the family station wagon. Something else um, you can't really find today. No, that's right. Well, I, I you know, it's funny because uh, ever since writing the book, people send them to me all the time. They, they, they are really? available online. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Um, and then other times I would help uh, my dad keep an eye out for Smokies, you know, up ahead. We were, he was always trying to push the speed limit. And, and uh, so he would actually assign each one of us kids in the car like a zone uh, to keep an eye on. So he might keep his eye along the left side of the highway, you know, looking for, for cops with their radar guns out and setting up a speed trap. And he might assign one of us to look si- to look along the right side or another one of us to look out the back window to make sure no one was sneaking up from behind. So that was kind of a, a fun game that I would play with my dad. And, and um, on occasion, I might even try and, and hop on the CB, which my dad had in one of his cars and strike up conversations with truckers or other travelers that we might encounter along the way. So uh, long before you started traveling uh, the roadways with your family, um, uh, we had a transportation transportation system in the United States. And, and you contend that we were a little late to the game um, mm. when it came to building a network like that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the early roads in the United States? 
Oh, sure. Well, you know, America was, of course, a, a very young country when compared to the European nations. And it was also a very large one. So we didn't have many roads across the country for a very long time. Uh, and building a cohesive network of roads was an incredibly difficult and expensive proposition. Um, the first roads were what were called King's Roads. Uh, those are roads that colonial farmers that uh, were, had farms near cities kind of demanded be built uh, in order to help them get their products to market. Um, in 1795, uh, a private company built America's first turnpike between the cities of Philadelphia and Lancaster uh, to help expedite commerce between those two cities. Uh, essentially, it was a toll road with travelers stopped at regular intervals by pikes, which were really spiked gates. So in exchange for a fee, the guard rotated the pike and allowed travelers to pass. And that's how we got the name turnpike. They actually turned a pike to allow the travelers to pass. Uh, it took a little bit longer for publicly funded roads to come about. President uh, Thomas Jefferson grew so frustrated with the poor condition of his commute from his home in Monticello uh, that he became an advocate for the uh, construction of public roads. Uh, the first was the National Road, which really became a gateway to the West, essentially the state of Ohio uh, for settlers. The West who, at that time. Right, exactly. Uh, from the, the Eastern colonies. Uh, and that was built for settlers who wanted to head west and, you know, kind of stake claims and farmsteads for themselves in America's interior. So that that was about uh, 1813 that they started building the National Road. Then you have to fast forward actually several decades. And it was really America's first bicycling craze in the latter part of the 1800s that spurred the construction of better roads. Uh, bicycling became incredibly popular at that time uh, because of the invention of what was called the safety bicycle. Until then, bicycles were those kind of old-timey high-wheel designs that we remember, what were called the, the penny farthings. Exactly, that's right. Uh, and they were incredibly dangerous bikes because if you fell off the seat, you know, of course, they were situated uh, you know, uh, on top of those huge, enormous front wheels of the bikes if you fell and off like that. Six feet in the air. That's right. And you could really hurt yourself. You were liable to break a wrist or an arm or a collarbone. So it was really the design of safety bicycles that changed the position of the pedals from being attached to that big front wheel to being attached to a chain and positioned between e two equal sized wheels with the rider's feet in easy reach of the ground. And that, of course, opened bicycling to women and kids and older riders, uh, not just the daring young men who would ride the penny farthings. And so but bicycling uh, all of a sudden became immensely popular. And all those riders on all those bicycles began to clamor for better roads on which to to ride these bicycles. Um, not long after that, the invention of the automobile around the turn of the 19th century, you know, these automobile enthusiasts kind of took over this push for the good roads movement so they could travel to even greater distances and even uh, travel in their cars to, you know, some of the far off cities. By the 1820s, there along came a man by the name of Thomas H. McDonald, who uh, became known as the chief. He was he kind of ran the Bureau of Public Roads in a manner in which J. Edgar Hoover would later run the FBI. He was kind of a cantankerous and colorful bureaucrat that 
kind of commanded every room with the sheer icy looks that he would, you know, give some of his subordinates. But uh, through sheer force of will, he was able to build 3.5 million miles of paved highway highways over his long career. Uh, and during the Depression, of course, building roads became essentially a federal jobs program. Then, uh, you know, that takes us basically up to World War II and President Eisenhower, um, you know, due to many of his experiences, both crossing America's first transcontinental highway uh, right around 1918. um, Yeah, tell us a little bit about that first cross-country trip. The, the, The visual associated with that is just hilarious. Oh, I mean, that's one of the great stories of, of, of travel history. Uh, and really, you know, the first successful attempt to cross America by car really began, as many bad ideas do, on a bet made after several cocktails. <laughs> now, it involves a 31-year-old doctor by the name of Horatio Jackson, who was from Vermont, but in 1903 took a vacation with his young bride to San Francisco. He was actually recovering from a mild bout of tuberculosis. So he goes out drinking with a friend one night. They go to the San Francisco's University Club, and soon he finds himself embroiled in a heated debate with another member there about whether these new inventions called automobiles were a passing fad or the future of transportation. And although Jackson didn't own an automobile and may have never even driven one at that time, he uh, began to argue strenuously that cars are the future and declared that automobiles are already so rugged and reliable that he could drive one clear across the country back to his home in Vermont. Well, not surprisingly, Jackson was called on his proclamation and the two men set a wager of $50, which wasn't a, a great amount of money back then. It would be about $1,500, but Horatio Jackson was a, a wealthy surgeon and married well. Uh, so the money wasn't a big deal. Uh, it's but the principle Jackson, of the thing. Yeah, well, I, you know, what was a big deal was Jackson having to go home and explain the bet he had made to his new wife. <laughs> <laughs> now, she was a smart woman and took a train home to Vermont. Uh, but meanwhile, Jackson hires a young mechanic by the name of Sewell Crocker to join him. Uh, Crocker recommends that Jackson buy a 20-horsepower Winton for the feet, a Winton touring car. Uh, the two load the car with shovels and guns and all manner of cooking equipment, and they set off. They head north to avoid the most treacherous parts of the Rockies, which are immediately east, of course, of San Francisco. Uh, and Within a few miles, they blow their first tire, requiring them to use their only spare. Not long after that, they blow two more tires and have to wind thick rope around the rims of the vehicle just to keep making progress to the next town where they can order uh, more uh, uh, tires. They're given bad directions at one point by a woman who sends them 100 miles out of their way just so the woman's family can get their first look at an automobile. And at another point, Jackson and Crocker don't hear their cooking equipment fall off over the the loud din of the car's engines. Uh, I mean, the the car's headlights prove too dim to allow for travel at night, so they purchase a spotlight to mount to the hood. I mean, it's just looking like a lost cause. But at some point, they pick up a stray dog, a, a pit bull that they name Bud as a third travel companion. And... By picking Bud up, it, it kind of seems to change their luck. They even have Bud outfitted with his own driving goggles to protect his eyes, and the press catches wind of this. They start turning out you know, to interview and take pictures of the trio everywhere they stop, and along the way, they suddenly become national celebrities. 
east of the Mississippi River, the, the roads began to improve, and finally they roll into New York City and Times Square, where they're greeted as heroes by throngs of cheering fans. And all it took was 63 days, about two full months, to complete the, uh, the first transcontinental road trip across America. I mean, there were essentially no roads built west of the Mississippi River except in major cities like San Francisco. So, uh, and no atlas. Pretty, exactly, no road atlas. So, I mean, they, they did take advantage of some uh, paths that, that, that had already been created, you know, essentially by wagons uh, that had, you know, made their way west during, you know, the times of the Old West. But that's about really all they had to go off of. It was, it was a, a, a hard, hard trip. I feel like Bud needs to be a Christmas ornament or a plushie or something. Oh, and there's some great photos of him that if you Google, uh, yeah, Bud and Horatio Jackson, uh, it's just classic. And and actually, they have the original uh, Winton that he took along with a, a stuffed uh, Bud at uh, one of the Smithsonian's in Washington. I was just out there not too long ago, uh, the Smithsonian for American History. Let's fast forward a, a few decades past the Great Depression and World War II. And after World War II, um, because nobody's really going on road trips per se, um, but after World War II, people do start going on road trips. And what fuels that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, World War II uh, was really the impetus for the boom in family road travel in just so many ways. Um, You know, of course, it was the draft and enlistment that whisked young men off of farms and kind of out of their urban neighborhoods and sent them off to train in distant areas of the country, in California and Texas, and especially Florida, uh, where more than two million soldiers were trained during the course of, of World War II. And for many of these men, it was really their first time seeing America uh, and and really seeing you know the world at all beyond a few miles from the homes that they lived in. And, and many were enthralled with the experience. And of course, many of these same soldiers were also sent off to fight in the cities of Europe and in the the South Pacific, and it only stoked their fascination with travel. So after the war, many of these men came home. They, of course, married and started families. That led to the the beginning of the baby boom. Uh, Meanwhile, American factories made the quick changeover from building tanks and airplanes to churning out vast numbers of automobiles. And of course, this this post-World War II period was a time of incredible economic prosperity. So people could afford to buy cars and they could afford to travel. In fact, by 1960, 77% of American families owned at least one car. That was a staggering figure at that time. So with you know all these cars and more kids and more disposable money and time, Americans were really ready to hit the highways in vast numbers and explore their country like never before. All right. And uh, after that, uh, you know, President Eisenhower makes the interstate highway system. And um, where are Americans headed? Well, uh, you know, they wanted to find out Amer- about America and, and see all these beautiful spots and, and uh, kind of visit his- America's historic landmarks. So uh, a place they, or places that they weren't, went in particular were America's national parks, especially places like Yosemite and Yellowstone and other of the, the national parks out west. In fact, between 1955 and 1972, attendance at America's national parks and historic sites well more than doubled from 65 million in 1955 to 165 million by 1972. And this is at a time when America's population is only about 210 million people. 
So they went to the national parks in mass. They also, uh, this was a time in America where uh, all Americans were kind of fascinated by the old West. I mean, you look at the popular TV shows and movies of that time, people were watching uh, shows like Bonanza and movies like the Magnificent Seven or the, you know, the spaghetti Western Westerns featuring Clint Eastwood. Right, These right. were the things that were all the rage. So tourists, uh, wanted to take part in that. They went to the uh, original, real, genuine boom tones like Tombstone in, in Arizona and Virginia City uh, and other of the, the, the genuine boom tones. Um, attendance also exploded at the landmarks of Washington, D.C. Um, but really, the big destination became Florida. And again, that goes back to the experience that, that many men had during World War II. These soldiers wanted to return to that great warm weather and the sunny beaches that they had experienced during their training uh, for, for war. And um, also, the U.S. government created one of the biggest tourist attractions in the nation by starting NASA and, and, and of course, with the space program. Millions of stargazing tourists traveled to Florida by car to see every launch of the, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo space po programs at Cape Canaveral, uh, peaking, of course, with the uh, Apollo 11 launch that drew more than a million onlookers just to see that launch from the beaches along the space coast in person. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I forget what how many more watched on TV. I think it was in excess of 60 million watched the event uh, on live TV. So that just you know goes to demonstrate the interest in that particular uh, event and in the space program at that time. Anyway, by 1970, and this is before Walt Disney World was even built, there were 23 million tourists coming to Florida each year, and that was more than the population uh, of all of California at that time. All right, so we have this this mass annual migration of people all over the country. Well, you already mentioned, uh, you know, your dad liked to go a, a little bit fast, as did, um, <laughs> as did, did probably most people. Yes. Um, but th there's an interesting history behind the speed limit, particular, particularly in the 70s. Um, yeah. What happened there? Well, originally we have the Brits to thank for the first speed limits, but they quickly found their way to America. In fact, the first written speeding ticket was given out to a man by the name of Harry Myers in Dayton, Ohio in 1904. Uh, you you want to take a guess at how fast he was going, Kevin? What was, what was the year again? Uh, 1904. So uh, these are still the very earliest of automobiles. At this time. 25 mile an hour. Yeah, not quite that fast. He was barreling along at 12 miles per hour in an eight mile per hour zone. <laughs> <laughs> eight mile per hour. Right. But, uh, you know, of course, once American police officers got their first taste of issuing speeding tickets, they quickly got the hang of it. Um, you know, of course, for the purposes of family road travel, the event that had the most impact uh, on on speed limits was America's first oil crisis in 1973, four, right around that time. Uh, and that was because of America's support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The OPEC nations dramatically cut oil production and America faced the prospect of a, a real long-term uh, fuel shortage because, because uh, studies showed that significant fuel could be saved by cutting the highway speed limit. The government under, under the Nixon administration imposed a national maximum highway speed limit of, of course, 55 miles per hour. Remember, 55 Nixon saves would. lots. Yeah. They're, right. That was under Nixon. A lot of people blame Carter for it, but it was actually under the Nixon administration. Well, uh, this new 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was 
almost immediately and universally despised by all Americans, uh, but especially my father and, of course, truckers. Uh, you know, truckers had long had CB radios in their trucks to communicate with each other. In fact, uh, CBs had really been around since since the early 1950s. Uh, but now they took to using those CBs to keeping each other updated on the location of what they came to know as Smokies or came to call Smokies uh, along the highways who might be setting up speed traps to try and catch them speeding. Well, soon ordinary motorists were also purchasing CBs and learning the colorful language of CB jargon. You know, of course, they began calling speed patrol officers Smokies because because of the wide brimmed hats they wore were similar to the hat worn by Smokey the Bear in those fire prevention commercials. Uh, And everyone started referring to cops with radar guns as, you know, Kojaks with Kodaks and calling Trans Ams fire chickens because of the designs of the flamboyant birds on their hoods, you know, from the old uh, 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 Smokey and the Bandit movies with Burt Reynolds. Um, and they started, you know, concluding conversations with a, a 10, four good buddy. And it was just, you know, it was just a hugely popular phenomenon. The, the CB craze, of course, inspired the hit song Convoy by C.W. McCall. And then a movie and TV shows like Dukes of Hazard and BJ and the Bear. Uh, by the end of the 1970s, there were 14 million licensed CB users in America. And those are only the licensed ones. Of course, the actual number of CB users was probably many times that even had folks like uh, Betty Ford, you know, the former first lady wife of, of President Gerald Ford uh, was a regular CB user, as was Mel Blanc, um, the voice of Bugs Bunny and Donald Duck, who would who would often, um, you know, talk on their their CB radios in the Los Angeles area, actually in character. So as Bugs Bunny and as Daffy Duck. So that must have been pretty fun for, I bet for kids folks love that. traveling. Yeah, exactly. So that's uh, that's pretty amazing that the international geopolitics is causing you to get a speeding ticket. Right. Oh, and it was just a it was a source of endless frustration, uh, you know, for motorists just like my dad, because, you know, in one fell swoop, the, the speed limit was lowered in many places from 70 miles per hour and 75 miles per hour, even 80 miles an hour in some areas of the country down to a nationally mandated maximum speed limit of 55 miles per hour. So it felt like for these drivers that that, you know, were once able to travel these same highways at a, at a much higher speed all of a sudden it felt like they were just crawling along it was a source of endless frustration for them i'm sure i'm sure and and some people developed ways to get around that um you talked about cb radios but there's also a a technological innovation Right. The Fuzz Buster developed by Dale Smith. He was actually, um, uh, I believe he worked, uh, he was a research scientist for the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. I think he worked out of uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, in Dayton. So he got caught by a speed trap one day and instead of uh, getting mad, he got inventive and he went into his garage and and began to work uh, to develop a device that could identify X-band uh, radio signals at a distance longer than their operating distance. So, in effect, he would see police radar before police radar could track him. 
and so he came up uh, with this little electronic device. He attached a, a blinking red light to it and, of course, a little siren that would sound and began to test it around town and, and found that it was uh, very good at identifying police radar um, and marketed the device as Fuzzbuster under the company name Electrolert. And this became a tremendously successful device. Again, just like uh, Mattel Electronic Football, it was named one of Time Magazine's all-time 100 gadgets uh, and just became a phenomenally successful device. I think uh, it became a $350 million a year industry uh, by the early 1980s. So... Uh, obviously, there were a lot of users. My dad wasn't one of them. He was, uh, you know, he was a businessman. It was kind of taboo, wasn't it? Right, because he was, you know, he was, uh, he didn't want to be perceived as a lawbreaker. And in order to use one of these Fuzzbuster devices, you had to mount it up on your dashboard. It was completely visible to all those around it. Um, and so, uh, you know, people knew that you were trying to evade or, or break the law. And my dad did not want to be uh, lumped in with the, 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 the long hairs and hippies of that time as a, you know, upstanding member of society. Uh, so he improved. He uh, uh, had just about every other strategy to help evade law enforcement. But he, he was never one to buy a, a fuzzbuster, even as effective as they were. All right. Well, it, as families, um, you know, continue to travel, um, obviously they, they had to eat. Um, but you humorously write in the book that yours kind of didn't. Um, but <laughs> but uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the first drive-in and drive-through chains and, and how we, we really became a drive-through nation at one point? Yes, we did. And I'll tell you what, Kevin, if you want to start a real food fight, just declare with any degree of certainty who you think the first restaurant chain was to invent drive through service. Because just about every fast food chain that was around during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s claims to have either invented drive through service or innovated it uh, in some way. Uh, but really, it appears that it all started with a chain called Kirby's Pig Stands, which were a chain of barbecue stands uh, in Texas. And, and this is really back in the 1920s. Um, owner Jack Kirby keenly observed that, as he said it, people in cars are so lazy they don't even want to get out of them to eat. So what Kirby did is he hired a staff of young car hops to run out and greet customers as they drove up to his restaurants. They literally hopped up on the running boards uh, of these cars to take customer orders through their windows. Hence, that's how they got the name car hops. They actually hopped up on the cars. Uh, but of course, this only qualified uh, Kirby's pig stands as dry as offering drive up service, not really drive in or drive through. Still, it kind of got the ball rolling. But one of the franchisees who owned one of these pig stands realized that even keeping the staff of car hops was kind of a pain. So he wound up just knocking a window in, in a wall uh, near his grill so that customers could drive right up and place their orders directly with uh, kitchen staff. Um, in another area of the country, in Missouri, there was also a man named Red Cheney, who opened up a fast food style restaurant al along Route 66 that he named Red's Giant Hamburg. There's a great story I go into in the book behind that as well. Um, but because he ran this basically hamburger joint with just his wife, he also installed a, a drive up window beside his grill. And many folks credit him with really inventing drive through service. But then, you know, there's also the the made right burgers uh, that were founded in Iowa and in and out burgers 
found it out west, Jack in the Box, many others all kind of claim credit for inventing the drive through in some way. But what's interesting is that McDonald's, you know, who we so closely associate with drive through service today, was really kind of late to the party. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting, completely different than what I would expect. Right. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't introduce their first drive through window until 1975. And even then it was because a single franchisee in Arizona installed it in violation of corporate policy. They were they kind of went rogue here and just decided to install uh, their own drive through window. But once McDonald's did start allowing drive through service for all its franchise, it quickly caught on. Uh, the number of McDonald's locations exploded, of course, throughout the 1970s. And by the end of the decade, well more than half of all of McDonald's revenue was handed over through drive through windows. So it was a, a, a significant and very important um, uh, addition for them to offer drive through service. And you talk about... Um as well where, where you would stay uh, on your trips. Um, and, and lodging seems uh, kind of interesting. There's this bizarre obsession with domes in the 1970s. Yes. The holodome. Yes. Yes, you're speaking, of course, of the famous or maybe infamous holodome concept, which was introduced by Holiday Inn during the 1970s. You know, America had become kind of obsessed with domes during the 1970s. We were building domed sports stadiums everywhere, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, the, uh, the, down in Houston, the Astrodome was really the first of the big domes, the Superdome in New Orleans. Um, communities were, in many cases, building domed golf ranges in colder climates to offer indoor golfing during the winter. Uh, and even Walt Disney himself built a domed roller coaster with Space Mountain down in, at, in Walt Disney World. Well, some motel owners in these colder weather climates struck on the idea of also putting a dome over their motel pool. And the reason was that pools offered motels an incredible advantage in drawing guests. People loved them, and motels that offered pools uh, drew 60% more guests than those who didn't. Uh, Charles Kemmons Wilson, the founder of Holiday Inn, uh, realized this very early on. It's why he insisted on uh, be making sure to have a pool at every Holiday Inn location. But again, for motels... Indoor and, pool. Uh, well, at, originally they were all outdoor, and this is, this is how it kind of transitioned to indoor pools. Uh, because for motels and colder climates, that competitive advantage of having just a pool, an outdoor pool, that of course disappeared during the winter unless they could find a way to keep that pool open year-round. And that's where domes came in. So this idea of doming a pool or enclosing a pool area quickly evolved into the holodome concept. Uh, where a, a motel with a you know had a completely enclosed glass atrium that kind of covered a central pool and a courtyard, and holodomes perfectly embodied the 1970s because everything about them was just completely artificial and tacky. Uh, inside there would usually be a huge pool surrounded by beds of plastic trees and shrubs to kind of create a jungle-like, you know, atmosphere. There might be a little tiki bar off to the side where parents could sip on cocktails while keeping an eye open on their kids swimming in the pool. You know, there, there'd also usually be a, a cluster or two of the great stand-up arcade video games of the 1970s, you know, the games like Space Invaders or Pac-Man. And the one thing that every holodome had was this atmosphere of just 
thick, heavy, humid air because, of course, all the humidity and the condensation inside these enclosed pools. It seemed like there was always a, a thick cloud of condensation hanging right under the transparent plexiglass ceiling. And you kind of felt, you know, if you were in one of these holodomes, you always felt like you were kind of breathing in warm soup or something. You know, it's kind of a, a, a gross feeling. It's basically but, a greenhouse. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, these holodomes were also they were they were fantastic because it was like you could be inside a holodome in Illinois in December and it felt like you were in Florida already. So in that way, it was kind of like a vacation within a vacation because you were in this warm, tropical environment long before you ever arrived at your final destination in Florida. Or in some cases, families would just take their actual vacations to these holodomes and instead of driving all the way to Florida, they would simply spend a long weekend at one of these holodomes and enjoy the, the, the warmth and fun that could be found inside. Yeah, that, that's one theme that I noticed throughout your book. Uh, no, no matter you know, what topic you're on, whether it's food or lodging, you, you see the emergence of this consistency of experience no matter where you go. Right. And really, that's, you know, that's what the, the big chains were all about was, of course, offering a taste of the, the familiar to families in unfamiliar places. When you went to a chain, what they really offered was consistency and predictability. A Big Mac, you know, in Wisconsin tasted the same as one that you got in Louisiana or Florida. And so, you know, you knew uh, you knew what to expect. You knew uh, the kind of food that was going to be offered, what what it would taste like and, and the prices that you could expect. So again, a taste of the familiar and unfamiliar places. All right. And so what about um, driving itself? What, what were you riding in? Um, can you describe some of the, the, the cars that were pretty unique and had, it's just this contained bubble in the 1970s of weird yes. automotive engineering. It, it truly was a, a weird and wonderful era for the automobile. And of course, you know, mandatory drug testing of employees didn't come into vogue until the 80s. And that may explain some of the unusual car designs of the <laughs> 1970s. Uh, some of them were pretty wild. It was a, definitely an interesting time to be out on the highways. I mean, this was the era of the Chevy El Camino, you know, a car that looked like a pickup truck had been run into the back of a sports car. Uh, or there was the Volkswagen thing, which was kind of like a combination of a California dune buggy and a Nazi staff car. Uh, Subaru had the Subaru Brat, which was, was really the most strained acronym of all time. Brat, B-R-A-T, stood for Buy, Drive, Recreational, All-Terrain Transporter, if you can believe it. Uh, the vehicle's most distinguishing feature was a pair of, of rear-facing jump seats that were actually located outside the main enclosed passenger compartment in the vehicle's cargo bed, which were apparently put there to discourage anyone from asking Brat's owners uh, for a ride to the airport. It was definitely a, a, a wild and weird time to be out on the roads. And, you know, of course, it, it was it, there was such a, a, a um, menagerie of vehicles on the road at the time because you had these huge land yachts like my dad favored the big Lincolns and Cadillacs. But, of course, because of America's uh, first oil crunch, you also had all these incredible small subcompacts and then. You had these uh, wildly painted custom vans, um, you know, which many people associate, you know, with the heydays of the 1970s and the rock bands, you know, who would all load up their mm -hmm. instruments into these crazy painted uh, uh, custom vans. So the highway was just filled with all these unique and and I would call them wonderful designs. 
But those weren't, uh, I mean, uh, these weren't the, the vehicles that we took on road trips generally, obviously. Uh, most of the families of the day had enormous station wagons. I, I think it was almost mandatory for suburban families in the 1970s to either own a Ford Country Squire or an Oldsmobile Custom Cruiser station wagon. Wood uh, of course. That's right, with the wood paneling on the sides. Um, of course, the main features on these station wagons were, uh, you know, a big old tailgate swing open door that was about the same size and construction of a, a bank vault door. Uh, and then, of course, many of them had these pop up seats in the, the far, far back cargo area, which we commonly called the way back. Of course, the, these seats usually faced the side or the rear and generally made any of us uh, kids who were sentenced to sit in them nauseous, you know, for the duration of our road trip. Um but for a variety of reasons that I go into in the book, uh, my dad generally bought the real land land yachts of the era, the Cadillacs, the Lincolns, the Oldsmobiles. Uh, he typically bought them a couple of years used so that he could get them at a steep discount. And he always bought the ones that were loaded with all the extras and options, the carriage top roofs and opera windows, fold down headlight covers. Of course, they had the flecked paint and pinstripes and white wall tires. So uh, my family kind of cruised the highways in style. It, you know, it was kind of a peculiar style, but a style nonetheless. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk a little bit about you and your family then. Um, most families, uh, when they road trip, uh, they road trip during the summer. Um, not yours. You went in the dead of Wisconsin winter. Why yeah. is that? Well, my dad was a, a, a golf addict, essentially, and we lived in Wisconsin, which is not a great state to live in if you want to play a sport that involves chasing a little white ball around a golf course, especially in December when we typically have about 20 inches of snow on the ground. So the point of our family vacations was usually to get my dad out of the Wisconsin winter and to a a warm, sunny golf course, you know, as fast as humanly possible. So what that meant is we usually traveled due south, usually to, you know, some golf resort that he came across in the back of one of his golf magazines, uh, located along, fittingly, fittingly enough, I guess, the Gulf Coast uh, or along Florida's Panhandle. And we always traveled uh, during the winter and early spring because that's when, as kids, that's when our uh, Christmas break or Easter break fell. And that's when we were able to get off of school. And so that's when we generally traveled was during Christmas break or Easter break, unlike, of course, many other families who traveled during the summer months. And so despite, um, you know, hazardous, snowy road conditions, um, uh, you talk a lot about how your dad's always trying to make good time. Uh, how do you pull that off? Yeah, well, you know, in doing the research for the book, I found that dads generally fell into two categories. The first, which was the much smaller group, was made up of dads that loved to stop at like every cheesy roadside attraction or historical marker that, you know, you might come across along the highway. <laughs> uh, and the other group, the one to which my dad belonged, was all about what he called making time. He wanted to get to whatever destination he set for us for that day as quickly as possible, even if there was no other reason other than to just prove that it could be done. So, you know, he was not a man who was keen on stopping for just about anything from meals to potty stops to even getting gas. And he would stretch every tank of fuel to the absolute limit. And it would drive my mom absolutely nuts. They would have these heated arguments over when was the appropriate time to stop and and refuel. In the book, I call it kind of the battle of E. 
Um, my mom always wanted to stop and fuel up as soon as the needle of the fuel gauge dropped below a quarter tank. My dad, who was usually driving and therefore had total control over the vehicle, never wanted to stop until the needle was actually below E. See, he insisted in his heart of hearts that automakers calibrated fuel gauges so that at least 40 miles worth of fuel remained even when the needle uh, hit E or, or when the low fuel light came on. So as you can imagine, this led to countless uh, occasions of us out on the highway sweating out some anxious moments as we prayed you know, that we would make it to a gas station while we were out in the boonies somewhere as, that, as we watched the fuel needle drop below E. And finally, uh, it was one rainy, dark night on a highway in Arkansas. We actually did run out of fuel, and my dad had to wind up hitchhiking to a, a, a gas station and uh, talk to, uh, the, to the tow truck driver at the gas station into driving him back uh, to our car with a couple of cans of, of, of gasoline. But uh, that, that put an end to uh, pushing the, uh, pushing the uh, stopping, you know, not getting gas until the, the needle was below E. He was done with that after that. Well, yes, as a family, we were done with it. My mom <laughs> made made that appointment. Made sure of that. Yes. So your um, experience with the the Great American Road Trip um, uh, came to an end when you took a trip to Washington D.C. in 1981, and and you kind of lament the end of the family road trip. Uh, what happened on that particular trip? Yeah, well, we took an airplane for the first time, and my siblings and I were all pretty shocked when my dad actually told us about this plan to fly to our destination. Uh, it happened one evening at dinner. Um, but, you know, I was aware that more of my friends had been flying places on vacation with their families. I just, at the time, I didn't really know why. Uh, and the reason was, was that the airline industry, which had always been an incredibly highly regulated uh, industry by the federal government, uh, was deregulated under the Carter administration in 1978. Uh, in a very short time, this brought about tremendous competition between uh, the airlines and the passenger airline market, and airfares plummeted. And for the first time, airfares became affordable for ordinary middle-class families like mine. And, and uh, these families took advantage of it in droves. Between 1975 and 1985, nearly 100 million more travelers boarded airplanes. Uh, and my family, of course, was among them, as were many others. Um, almost overnight, families started leaving their, their old station wagons and full-size automobiles at the airport and simply uh, began flying off to their destinations. It was much faster, uh, and e even if it wasn't quite as cheap as driving, it was still pretty affordable. So it was really deregulation of the airlines in the late 1970s uh, that put an end to the golden, what I call the golden era of family road trips. And so that kind of leaves us where we're at today. A, a, a lot of people try, uh, fly to destinations, um, but, you know, flying is, is rather expensive. It's still rather expensive, especially if you have a large family. Mm -hmm. um, people still take road trips, obviously. Oh. Um, do you have any advice for road trippers? Sure. And just to expand on that a little bit, I mean, it really appears that many families are rediscovering the benefits of road tripping instead of flying. Airfares, as, as you noted, have gone up dramatically in price. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, flying these days, there's all these unexpected delays and cancellations. You get nickel and dime for every bag you bring. There's no more free meals. You're crammed into a tiny seat. Security and people, lines. 
That's right. Long security lines. You have to get to the airport well in advance of your scheduled departure time. And and people have kind of ha- had it. So they're turning back to driving on vacations, especially millennials. Uh, in 2015, 22% of American vacations were taken by road trip. The following year, in 2016, that figure had climbed to 39%. That's a significant increase. So people are really coming back to road trips in a big way. But It's my hope that as families are rediscovering the practical benefits of road travel, that they're also rediscovering, you know, the magic of that shared family travel experience. Uh, So it's my advice. uh, My advice is to encourage parents to to get themselves and their kids to put down those personal electronic devices like iPhones and iPads and portable DVD players and what have you, and make time to enjoy the experience of traveling together. Uh, I mean, you don't have to get rid of the devices entirely. They have their place. They're certainly great for navigation, and uh, we all need time to retreat into our own little movie or audio book or music for a while. But it's also important to make time to play those old travel games together. You know, the alphabet game, the license game, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Sure, they're cliches, but they became cliches for a reason. They were incredibly fun. And I also recommend taking breaks. Uh, Do some research and see what interesting attractions lay along your planned travel route and and actually take the the time to stop at them. Unlike, you know, my dad, Uh, my family recently made a trip out to to Mount Rushmore. And while Mount Rushmore was great, it was, you know, a highlight destination. It was the point of our trip and everything. It was really the stops along the way that made that trip. We stopped off at the Field of Dreams near Dyersville, Iowa, Uh, a few hours to the west of there. Uh, we made a stop at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake. The Surf Ballroom is the the venue uh, that was the last place that uh, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens played before, of course, they they uh, you know boarded a, a, an airplane at a nearby airfield and uh, and flew off into a snowstorm and crashed in a nearby uh, nearby uh, cornfield. Um, later on that trip, we made a stop at the Minuteman Missile Historic Site in South Dakota. That was absolutely fascinating. They still have Minuteman missiles in their silos, uh, you know, yeah, as ready to go. You know, of course, they don't have active you know, nuclear warheads or right, anything, right. but, but, you know, it's just as they were, uh, when the majority of America's nuclear arsenal was, was, was placed out in South Dakota during the cold war. Uh, we stopped off in the badlands, a prairie dog farm, and even at, at, you know, the famous roadside attraction wall drug along I 70 in South Dakota. And you know, when we look back on it, those were the stops that we really remember. Um, If I can offer another great idea, it's to use some of those electronic devices to kind of enhance the travel experience. Uh, Before we got to the surf ballroom, I had this playlist all set up on my iPhone full of the music of Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, Richie Valens and other artists of that era. So I could talk to my kids about the significance of those artists and and the significance of the venue that we were all about to visit. so maybe you could even treat your family to a great audio book about the history of family road trips. How's that? Just, <laughs> just offering that as an idea. Uh, but my advice is just to make every effort to um, to share the travel experience together as a family and share that quality time together as a family, because uh, as every parent knows, those opportunities disappear all too quickly. 
Yeah, as as a, a parent myself, I I couldn't agree more. And and those road trips, like you said, are are hugely memorable, and you talk about them for years later. Exactly, and you know it's it's really about when you're heading out on the highways. It's about the discoveries that you all um, make along the way, and th- those sorts of discoveries and the the roadside attractions that you might visit, and the people that you might encounter, and the foods you might taste. Those are the sorts of uh, experiences that you can only have when you're traveling through America on a road trip, rather than flying over America in an airplane. All right, Rich, and for those that. Um would like to pick up a copy of your book, uh, where can they find it? Well, certainly available on Amazon, as most good books are. Uh, Also, uh, it's at Barnes & Noble. And, of course, it's important that we all get out there and support those independent bookstores, which are, you know, so important to communities. For sure. And uh, one last question for you, being from Wisconsin. uh, Yeah. Go Pack! Oh, gosh, it's been a brutal season. Yeah, I, you know, I actually do Packers commentary uh, at, on days uh, on a, a local radio station following every Packers game. And it's uh, yeah, it's been kind of a rough season. So, yeah, Packers yeah. Fan myself, you're you're absolutely right. Yep. So you feel my pain. I do. All, <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. This has been a, a great time. Thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate being invited on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Thank you to my guest, Rich Rattay, for sharing some fun history and his family memories with us today. If you're a fan of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and want to spread some Christmas cheer this way, consider subscribing to the podcast and rating it on iTunes. The more reviews and ratings a podcast has, the better chances it has of getting noticed by new listeners. If you want to learn more about the golden age of road tripping, visit the podcast blog at www.can'tmakethisuppodcast.com. There you'll find some additional resources and videos to help you learn more about today's topic. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at CMTU History. Give me a follow and say hello. I'd like to welcome some of the show's newest followers, Northworthy Sagas and Stories blog, Empires of History podcast, World War I Battlecast, that's spelled as WW1 Battlecast, novelist JM, The Ramblin' Fool, Ruthie Baker, and journalist and author Catherine Prince. I'd also like to thank Humanities Podcasters and Liz Tracy for adding the show to their history podcast directories. Well, I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I will see you all back here on January 8th.